0: Hi there, Duncan Green here with the uh, weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. It's been a very busy week. A lot of people coming, commenting, arguing, which is just how I like it, Um, and and largely behaving themselves as well. So I don't like all the nastiness, the trolling and stuff, but I do like the debates and the discussions, and it's been a vintage week for that. So we kicked off the week with um, one of my uh, habitual rants about uh, academic conferences. I really suffer at academic conferences. I go through weird mood swings. I get very cross about how badly they're arranged, and then I get very excited about the ideas or the people I'm listening to. And I went to one recently, and I thought I'd try and be a bit more positive and think, come up with some sensible suggestions for how to improve, in particular, the standard of presentations, because it's really extraordinary. I went to a a three-day conference last month, and you had some really basic errors, like famous, famous people, world names, who can't speak uh, in a half-hour talk. They sort of just introduce and chat and sort of talk around the subject for 20 minutes and then suddenly panic and start racing through their PowerPoints and losing the audience and saying, well, this is really interesting, but I don't have time to talk about that and so on and so on. So so I thought, how can I, yeah, what would be a constructive way to engage us? The first one is time training. So actually get people to practice giving a five-minute talk, a 20-minute talk, a 45-minute talk or lecture, and actually getting their whole subject you know into into that time, it should be a sort of basic part of academic training. If you think just how important it is for academics to speak on panels or give lectures, they really should be able to do this a bit better. The second one is if you 've done a big piece of research, then you know a crucial part of of making that research resonate with people is is the summary, the elevator pitch, the narrative you know I once I once asked a bunch of PhD students to give me their elevator pitches and one of them said, well, I would just jam the elevator so that the person got stuck with me and then I could really talk in detail about my PhD. That is cheating. That, that doesn't work. So test your narratives. Actually, you know, try three or four different ways of describing your research and see which ones people actually like. The PowerPoint. So death by PowerPoint is a a common feature of these conferences and there's some basic things, really basic things about PowerPoints. Don't have more than one slide for every two minutes of your talk. Don't put more than 25, 30 words on a slide. Don't do PowerPoint karaoke where you put up a slide and then turn to it and read it as if the audience is incapable of reading a, a PowerPoint slide. Just you know, use images rather than words if you can, stick a video on if you can, try and make it an entertainment thing rather than basically a set of overhead projector slides transferred onto, uh, onto a computer. And then going, thinking a bit more widely, why is it that we don't have a trip advisor kind of thing for speakers and chairs? So, you know, everybody in a, is sitting there, 200 people in a, in a conference, they ought to be able to say, whether they like or, 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 or whether the presentation was good or not. And then next time, as those things build up, when you're thinking about whether to attend a conference, you'd be able to get a better sense of what you could expect. You know, are they going to be good lecturers? Are they going to be good presenters? Are the chairs actually going to keep people to time? I had an interesting sort of uh, exchange with Heather Marquette uh, on, on, in the comments on this, because she felt it would be just adding to the stress for academics to, to be judged. Um, in this way and that, you know, it could get quite nasty. But A, I hope that academics wouldn't spend the entire time taking each other down. And B, we kind of demand that for everybody else. So I think, uh, you know, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. Um, Providing it's done respectfully, it shouldn't be anonymous. It should be, you know, on the record. So if you do say mean things, you have to take responsibility for that. But it would really help, I think, and then you could actually see what kinds of talks do you know, get better, get a better evaluation. You'd actually get some feedback. Other forms of feedback, <coughs> actually being taped and uh, videoed and watch watch that back. Maybe do it as a group with colleagues, so that you start to work together to improve the quality of your presentations. And then the final one, which I think is really important, is the quality of chairing. At a lot of conferences, is absolutely dire. People just see it as a kind of um, decorative uh, um, exercise. They just they just have to be nice to people. They don't try and keep them to time. Uh, it's quite easy to chair well, and it's actually a lot of fun to chair well. You get a lot more interaction in the room, but people don't seem to be trained or valued uh, for for chairing. So that was the end of my rant. Uh, hopefully, a positive rant. And then on the day that came out, um, the Nobel Economics Prize was, uh, was announced and the winners were Esther Duflo, Abhijit Banerjee and Michael Kramer, who are three of the sort of leading lights in the randomista movement, this uh, movement to use randomized controlled tra- trials to test interventions and to try and get much, ask much more sort of smart, clever, precise questions about the impact of aid projects or government programs or uh, all sorts of things. Um, so in response to that, I pulled together some uh, critiques of uh, RCTs, Randomised Controlled Trials, which I've had over the years on the blog, from me, but also from some much more eminent people. So people like Nyla Kabir, Stefan Durkin, Lan Pritchett, Angus Deaton, Um, put them all up there. um, And it all kicked off because... uh, obviously they've just won the Nobel prize. And by the way, huge congratulations for winning the Nobel prize, but then lots of conversations about whether we should be critiquing or celebrating. Um, somebody said, you know, what, what is that to, who should be celebrating? Who should be sort of concerned? And I think if you're an economist, that you're bound to be really. If you're a development economist, then it's great to have the Nobel Prize recognizing all this work going on around development economics rather than sort of mathematical abstractions of one sort or another. It's great that they're young by Nobel standards. It's great that there's, you know, Esther, Esther's in there. She's only the second woman, unbelievably, to win the Nobel Economics Prize. And, and that's like out of 100 or something. It's uh, quite extraordinary that. If you're a non economist like me, then I think there's, you know, You've got perhaps more more concerns that this is just going to add to the reification of a particular way of looking at the world and a particular kind of evidence, um, and and you know people in diff it already talk about RCTs as the gold standard, and that means everything else is bronze, um, and I think actually. The the, the themselves are absolutely clear that yeah these these can answer certain questions, not others, that is often best to mix up RCTs with more qualitative, more ethnographic kind of approaches. So anyway, the critique's got lots of comments, and I do urge you to go and read the comments by a bunch of really smart people on on the whole question of RCTs and what we can and what we can know from them and what we don't necessarily learn from them. The next post was um my go-to person on, uh, on on education debates, especially the very hot topic of public versus private education in uh, developing countries. Prachi Srivastava is a Canadian academic who's specialised in, and actually coined the term, uh, low-fee uh, private schools. Looking at this phenomenon that yeah, you know, while private schools in Britain may be all you know, Eton and posh people, uh, in poor countries, in developing countries, there's a massive movement of low fee private schools aiming at the poor or poor people, and um, Prachi's pioneered some of the, a lot of that work. And this is a kind of update. She was in London, and I sat her down and got an update on why the numbers are still rising, how she sees the whole question of the role of teachers. Um, and some new developments in terms of chains of these low-fee schools emerging uh, and service providers doing things like curriculum development or teacher training and all this kind of thing. So good to just find out the latest, you know, the latest developments on that issue. And then to uh, cap the week, finish off the week, we had Charles Dewa, who runs a thing called Knowledge Transfer Africa. Based, he's based in Zimbabwe. And he had, I thought, a really nice piece on homegrown economies in Africa. And he says a homegrown economy is all about identity. What an interesting way to start a discussion on economics. Who are we? What are our values? And he goes on and sort of starts talking about the culture and identity and history of a country as part of its natural resource base. It's not just about oil and gas. It's about who you are, it's about identity. And then he goes on to sort of talk about issues of participation and, uh, and, and he, he's a strong advocate of sort of active participation rather than what he calls passive citizenship. So I thought that was a really nice reflection to end the week on homegrown economies in Africa. It's been a busy week and I'm now going to have a bit of a break. So I'll see you next week. Bye.